this morning, I have the privilege to finish our two-part series on uh, Luke chapter 15. Two ditches, two brothers, one grace. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me to the book of Luke chapter 15 as we are going to take a look at the older brother this morning in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. I'll wait for you and I'll begin reading in the New King James Version of the Bible in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. And keep your Bibles there after we're done reading because I'm going to reference it throughout our time together. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 25, the Bible reads, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Verse 27, And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 28, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for what you've done for each of us. And Lord, as we have just read your word, we ask for a special outpouring of your spirit for the preaching of your word. Not just with my words, Lord, but with every individual heart here in the congregation today and online, that our hearts would be ready to receive what the spirit says to the church. This is what my prayer is. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, So I like to brag because I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I'm a gold member of Hertz. I'm a gold member. I signed up about a week ago. And I have, you know what it means? It doesn't doesn't mean a whole lot, actually. I rented a car previously just the other, uh, this week, and uh, one one of the benefits of renting a car Uh, at Hertz and being a gold member is that you can pay the cheapest amount to get the most basic car, but then when you go into the parking lot at the car rental place, there is a a plethora of different vehicles to choose from, 10 to 20 vehicles, and I felt like a kid at a candy shop, except I was choosing a car. And for someone like me who has been driving his Ford Escape that's been rusted for the, for the last five, six years, it was, a, it was a nice experience to feel like, hey, I can drive a nice car. And one, one car I noticed in the corner of my eye. It was a black sedan. It looked slicked. I, I, I got a little closer and I noticed the brand. You want to know the brand? It was a Honda. It was basic. But man, it looked good. 
The black exterior was beautiful. There wasn't any chips or dents or marks or anything wrong on the outside at all. And I thought to myself, man, this is my day. I get to move up from a Ford to a Honda. And so I get into the vehicle. I, I sit down. I enjoy the nice vinyl seating on the, on the chair. And I look at all the gadgetry. And I'm about to start the ignition. You know, you don't actually turn the key anymore. You press the button. I didn't even know that was possible. So I'm there, and I'm about to start the ignition. I'm about to press the button, and then something catches my attention. I start to smell something, a foul odor in the air. See my nose? I've got a Filipino and Italian nose. So it's big in width and in length. <laughs> and it's not just for looks. It's for smelling. I have a keen sense of smell. And... Uh, I smelled this foul, foul odor. It had this bitter residue in the air. You probably know the one, you know, where uh, it's been cleaned by chemicals and you, you can smell that. But in the pores of the vehicle, you couldn't hide the bitter stench of smoke in the vehicle. And the longer I sat there thinking, oh, no, no, I gotta, I'm going to rent this vehicle. It's perfect. It's perfect. The longer I realized oh man, I'm getting dizzy just even sitting here for a moment. And in a great disappointment, I had to go pick a different car. You know, I, I start with that silly kind of illustration because sometimes our faith in Christ is kind of like that black Honda car. On the outside, everything looks perfect. Everything looks great. We're put together there's nothing that people could say is wrong with our Christian experience. But if we were to crack open the window to our hearts, we would begin to get a sense of smell, a foul odor that something isn't quite right in our relationship with God. Today, we turn our attention to the older brother who, unlike the younger brother who went out into the faraway country and squandered his father's wealth, the older brother did the right thing. He stayed home. The Bible in verse 25 tells us where we find him. Now his older son was in the field, which tells us a great deal about the older brother. He's hardworking. He's diligent. He's dependable. He does what is right. He doesn't have any rusts or any dents or any marks on his life at all. Unlike his older brother, younger brother, who wasted his father's livelihood, he stayed home and he cultivated his father's wealth. He was the type of guy who you want your son to grow up to be. He was the type of person that you want your daughters to marry. He was a good, good man. But then as we continue the story, we start to get a sense that something isn't quite right. For as he leaves the field, the Bible says he hears music, and dancing. And that's not something he's familiar with as he ends work most days. And so as he approaches the house and hears music and dancing, the Bible says he asks a servant what is going on. He begins to ask questions and inquire what all these things mean. And at first you think, hey, a diligent guy asking a diligent question until Eugene Lowry, the author of A Homiletical Plot, notices something very interesting, that instead of calling the question to his father, 
who he had access to, instead of asking the question of what this meant to his dad, he went directly to the servant. It's a little suspicious because why would you ever go to a secondary source when you have the primary source right in front of you? So for me, uh, you know, um, I have a good relationship with my dad. Uh, he's uh, really good at building things, homes, schools, anything. And uh, whenever there's a problem in my house, heater not working, furnace not working, plumbing, whatever it is, something wrong with the drywall, do you know who I pick up and call? I call my dad. Do you know why? Because I've tried calling regular tradesmen, and look, some of them are honest people, but others of them are not so honest. So you call a regular tradesman to come in to fix your house, you're not exactly sure if they're going to do the right thing or if they're going to kind of fix something they don't need to to up the ante. So whenever there's something broken in my house, I go directly and I call my dad because I don't trust the regular service people nearly as much as I trust my dad. But here in our story, the, the older brother, he doesn't go directly to his father. He does the reverse. He goes to the servant to ask the question. Because even though everything looked right on the outside and he always made the good decisions and he always followed the rules, there was something in his heart that didn't trust his father. You know, today, sometimes, even though we have it all put together, sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we don't fully trust God with everything. And that's why it's easier for us at night when we are searching the deep meaning of life, we go to Google rather than going to God. Sometimes when we're trying to figure out what to do next or who to trust, we turn on our device content instead of go to our divine creator. And a lot of the times, if we're honest with ourselves, even though no one else would ever be able to tell there was something wrong with our hearts, we don't trust God the way we should. The older brother, he comes to the house. He asks the question of the servant. Hey, uh, what's going on with the music and dancing? And the servant gives the response. He says, listen, we have very good news. Your brother, your little one, you know, who went off into the far country for who knows how long. He's back home. He's home. And instead of being stoned at the city gate like Deuteronomy says he was supposed to, your father took him in and had compassion on him. He even slayed the fatted calf. And there's a huge party because your brother was dead and now he's alive. Your brother's home. And it's supposed to be a moment of joy and happiness and celebration. But don't miss the strange reaction in verse 28. For the Bible says very clearly and specifically that the older brother was angry. He was mad. So mad that he wouldn't even go into the house to greet his long-lost brother. You know, I can't help but think for a moment that if the older brother was so angry to see him come back home, he must have been pretty happy to see him leave. If the older brother was so angry to see him come back home, he must have been a little thrilled, a little too happy when he left. You know, I've been thinking about the problem within our denomination in terms of retention. 
The ministerial director out in the Southern Union informed the church that 43% of the people who joined the Seventh-day Adventist church, 43%, that's almost half, eventually leave. Young people, the numbers are even more staggering. 60 to 70% leave our faith formally uh, as they grow up into young adult years. And when I was younger, I'll tell you that when people left the church, I used to think black and white. I used to think, look, the reason someone's leaving the church is because they love sin more than they love God. They love, they love the world more than they love the church. That's why they leave, black and white, simple as that. But as I've grown up and I've been in the church and I've, I've, I've loved the church and work in the church, I realize that things are not always as black and white as they seem. That sometimes when someone is on the, the decision point, whether I'm going to leave the church or whether I'm going to stay in the church, whether I'm going to leave or whether I'm going to stay, am I going to leave, am I going to stay? Sometimes in that balance of decision-making, if we're not careful, we who are in the church can give them a little look, can make them a little sly comment, and put a small pebble on the scale that makes them leave. You know, sometimes it's not only that they want to experiment with sin. Sometimes it's not only that they love the world. But sometimes I look at this story at the angry brother's reaction, and I can't help but think, he had something. He had something to do with it. And I look at myself, and I, and I look at the state of the church, and I say, ah, God is too good. This message is too perfect. It can't just be them. It can't just be their problem. It has to be my problem. It has to be something that I'm doing. Because there's sometimes an issue when people can find more love and acceptance at a bar stool than they can in Sabbath school. There's got to be a problem when people find more uh, transparency and more openness at a hairdresser than they do with their pastor. There's got to be there's got to be an issue. There's got to be a problem when when people go to the gym and they get more affirmation at the gym than they do with the followers of Jesus. And I can't help but think that yeah, the younger brother had had some trouble, but the older brother there's something not right in his heart either. There's something wrong with him too. Even though he never left and always stayed and never did the wrong thing, there was something wrong in his heart as well. The Bible says that he's angry and he won't come in. The Bible hints to the idea that he doesn't trust his father. And I wonder, how is this possible? How can, how can someone who does so good have such a visceral reaction to something so wonderful like his brother coming home. And then I realize, though the younger brother had fallen into the ditch of lawlessness, the older brother had fallen into the ditch of legalism. The younger brother fell into the ditch of lawlessness, but the older brother fell into the ditch of legalism. Listen to what his response is to his father's pleading to come in in verse 29. So he said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You hear it? I 
me. I'm perfect. I'm righteous. I'm good. See, here's the problem with the ditch of legalism. Because the ditch of lawlessness, when you fall into it, you know. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You have those feelings of remorse that you're not doing what you're supposed to do. That's the ditch of lawlessness. But the ditch of legalism is much more deceptive. The ditch of legalism makes you feel good, makes you feel self-righteous, makes you feel proud and better than everyone else. That's what happens in our story today. He's self-righteous. He's never transgressed the commandments of God, whereas culturally in this time, for an older brother to not come in and be the host of any kind of visitor was breaking a commandment. But he forgets that. He's not breaking the commandment at the time. He's perfect, and even though he's not. And so he's in this scenario, and he is angry at his brother, and he starts to think, I am better than my brother. You can see that in the passage. Please don't miss it because uh, in verse 30, he puts himself above his brother. He says, but as soon as this son of yours came, he doesn't say, as soon as my brother comes home, equal. He says, as soon as this son of yours came. So what he's saying is, I'm up here and my brother is down here. I am righteous, but my brother is a sinner. He doesn't associate himself with his brother. He separates himself because even though he had it right on the outside, on the inside, his heart had fallen into the ditch of legalism. And then he judges his brother. Don't miss this because it's incredibly fascinating. He judges his brother and he says, this younger son of yours has wasted all your money on harlots or prostitution. That's what the text says. That's what the older brother accuses the younger brother of. But wait for a second. Think with me for a moment. Because nowhere in the entire chapter of Luke does it say anywhere that the younger brother spent his money on prostitutes. Earlier in the story, when the younger brother goes off to the far country, the text is very clear to say he lives wildly. It doesn't say how he lived wildly. It just said he lived wildly. And he never had a conversation with his brother to tell him what he did in the far country. It's not like when he came home from, uh, from the long journey, he was walking through the field, you know, just walking on the way home. Oh, hey, brother, how you doing? Long time no see. Yeah, I spent all dad's money. Oh, and you know what I spent it on? I spent it on prostitutes. See you later, brother. Take care. That doesn't happen. He doesn't know what his brother has done in the far country. But he's accusing him of something. You know what? Because while he was in the far country, his brother was in the far country, and the older brother was at home, he was diligently working in the field with his hands. But in his heart, he was thinking what he would be doing if he was off in the far country. He was thinking as he was plowing with his hands what his hands were going to be doing if he was in the faraway country. He was imposing 
on his little brother what his heart wanted to do the whole time but didn't have the guts to do. So he says to his brother about his brother, oh, he spent his money on prostitutes. No, he didn't. You don't know that. Stop talking about people you have no idea what's going on in their life. You have no idea what the challenges they face. And the older brother, he, he imposes his sin onto his brother. Ellen White has this wonderful quote where she says, the evil of looking, uh, for, uh, looking at evil in others, the habit of looking at evil in others develops the evil within ourselves. The habit of looking at someone and judging them and putting yourself above them and their sin develops the same sin within our own hearts. That's the brother. That's the older brother. He hadn't fallen into the ditch of lawlessness, but you know it, he's fallen into the ditch of legalism. But you know what, guys? I love this story. I love this story. It's a classic in Christianity because it's really not about the younger brother who fell into the ditch of lawlessness. And it's really not about the older brother who fell into the ditch of legalism. It's about the grace of God. It's about the goodness of the Father. It's about God's love, that God's love is not, show, it doesn't show partiality. God's love is extended to the person who's fallen into lawlessness, and God's love and grace is extended to the person who's fallen in legalism. Don't miss the grace of God in this story because just like the father approached that younger brother before he got to the elders, the Bible says that even though the older brother wouldn't talk to his father, it was the father who left the house and came to talk to his son. The father left his house to talk to his older brother. Don't miss the grace of God that God makes the first move in your life. Don't be falling into the trap of legalism that you think you did something to be where you are today, to be saved, to be in the presence of God. No, 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 no. You didn't initiate the conversation. God's grace started the conversation. Don't miss, don't miss the grace in this story because all I've seen when I read this story is what's wrong with the older brother. Man, doesn't trust his father. He's angry. He's judgmental. No wonder the younger brother left. Like, what's wrong? But the father doesn't do that at all. He sees his, his older son, and he, he reaffirms his faith. He says, man, son, you have always been with me. I haven't missed those moments where you were working hard in the field for me. I haven't missed those times when even though no one else was working hard, you were working hard. The father reaffirms his faith. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't condemn him. He, re he reaffirms him and he says, you're a good son. I love you. You're faithful. He calls him to what he isn't yet. Don't miss the grace in this story. Don't miss it at all. Because he says to his son, he says to his older brother, the older brother, he says, everything I have, is yours. I haven't withheld anything from you. The older brother said, man, you never, you never gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends, but you gave the fatted calf to my, my older brother in our vernacular language uh, for Pastor Jason's amusement. It's like saying, you know, you never even took me out to Wendy's, but you took my whole, you took my brother out to Olive Garden. <laughs> Pastor Jason hates Olive Garden. That's why. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so 
the, the father, he's, he's reaffirming his faith. He's reconciling his brother, not only to the father, but to his older brother. And, and, and he's re, reestablishing his, his status as a son of God who has right to everything. Don't miss the grace in this story. Because yes, the younger brother had fallen into lawlessness and the older brother had fallen into legalism. But the grace of God is for everyone. I want to end with this personal story about uh, how I'm always reminded of God's grace in my life. Whenever I'm tempted to have the foul odor of bitterness arise in my heart or resentment and anger, uh, I'm reminded of this a time in my life. Uh, I was young. I guess it was uh, a little younger than I am now, about 11 years ago. And I had just graduated from Southern Adventist University. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but it's hard to get a job as a pastor. Like other professions, you can graduate. There's a lot of need and they'll just hire you right away. But uh, as a theology graduate, uh, it's not easy to find a job as a pastor. I have friends who were an undergrad with me 11 years ago who to this day still don't have calls, uh, don't have jobs. Some, most do, but some don't. It's hard sometimes. And so when I graduated from uh, Southern back in 2010, uh, I didn't have a job. And so I did the self-sacrificial thing. I signed up to be a student missionary uh, in Hawaii. <laughs> oh, for the gospel. <laughs> Hard life, right? To be working in Hawaii. Uh, no, it was a great time. I, I learned that I love working with young people. I have a gift with working with high school students that I just enjoyed. And I pretty much was a high school student back then. And uh, so... So I, uh, I, I went to Hawaii, had a great year, but still after doing pretty good, there was no job that opened up in Hawaii. I was like, oh man, what am I going to do? Well, I guess I have to go to seminary now because I don't have a job and you have to get a master's at some point, but I really didn't want to go to seminary at that point because for me, and no, no offense, Dr. Burt, even though you're a great seminary teacher, um, learning to be a pastor in a classroom it's kind of like learning how to play basketball in a classroom. You can learn the fundamentals. You can learn what's very important, what to look out for. But until you play the game, you really have no idea what you're talking about. And so I had no idea what I was talking about. I had gone through four years of undergrad and I was like, I need to get my feet in the game. I need to work at a church. But I didn't have a job. And uh, so I went to camp meeting with my parents and uh, in Alberta, you know, think of sunny fields and, and farmhouse silos where we, where we meet. And uh, I'm just walking around and uh, just trying to hang out with some people. And, and I, I realize now, looking back, why I didn't get a job after graduating from uh, undergrad. Uh, I'm not a very good interviewer. Uh, when they, people ask me, hey, what's good about you? I don't like to brag about myself because I find that it's antithetical to the gospel. You know, I don't want to tell you how good I am. I'm here to tell you how good Jesus is. Like, that's, that's kind of my motto. And uh, so I realized that because when I went to interviews at Southern, they would say, so, you know, tell me, what separates you from, you know, your other classmates? I'd say, uh, nothing much, really. They're actually really good students here. would make great pastors one day you should really look at this one guy, you know? Like, I think he's going to be a powerful, powerful pastor. And so I didn't get a job. Like, I realize now, you know, the 
foolish inexperience, but that's what happened. So I don't really promote myself, but you know who does promote me shamelessly and recklessly? My mom. <laughs> and my wife now, praise God. <laughs> uh, so my mom is going around Alberta camp meet, and she's done this ever since I was a kid. And she's like, oh, you know, my son, he is the best. And he studied theology, and he's going to be a pastor. My son, you should hire him. He would talk to the ministerial director, and he'd be like, okay, lady, please leave me alone. <laughs> uh, but he, my mom would do this, and she ran into a senior pastor by the name of Randy Barber, who was looking for a youth pastor. And uh, God, God bless your mom. And uh, she said the, the whole thing, oh, my son is the best. He just worked with young people in Hawaii. You should hire him. And so, you know, Randy uh, and I have a meeting out in the back of this little silo on a little wooden bench at a camp meeting. And I sit down with him for 15 minutes. And he's like, hey, man, I've been interviewing a lot of guys from, from the Canadian university, and I'm just not, it's just not going to work between us. And so we talk for like 10, maybe 10 minutes, felt like five minutes. And he's like, you know what? This is going to work. This is going to work between you and me. He grabbed my hand. He brought me into the auditorium. He sat me down right in front of the president of the conference, the vice president, and the ministerial director. And they asked me, so, uh, do you speak Spanish? <laughs> and then I said, oh, no. <laughs> and that's probably another reason I didn't get a job in the Southern Union, a brown guy who doesn't speak Spanish. What's going on? Uh, and they said, you know what church Calgary Central is? I said, not really. It's a traditional church. And they said, yeah, that's true. And then they looked at Randy and they said, you want this guy? He was like, yeah. And I said, awesome. And in just one day, one day, my life changed. And I got to work as a pastor. That was 10, 11 years ago. And it was there that I met my wife. And it's there I had my kids. And it was in that environment that I learned about my love for ministry and about people. But never for a moment, guys, do I look back to that experience and say, I earned it. You know, like I had good interviewing skills. I worked my network really good. Never for a moment do I say, man, I, I deserve it. Uh, every time I'm reminded of that gift that God gave me by his grace. And whenever things in life get a little murky and things, uh, situations make me feel like maybe I should be bitter about this. Maybe this is unfair. Maybe this isn't right. I'm always reminded of that story and of my time being saved as a young kid to look through this world through the lens of grace. Because when you have a lens of grace through your life, you can only be filled with gratitude. But if in your heart you're doing all the right things and, you're, and, and, and everyone speaks well of you, but there's this bitterness inside of your soul, this resentment because of how people are unfairly treating you, then you're walking, looking through the lens of legalism. And I just want to encourage you as you enter this next phase of this week, as you enjoy whatever your job or your school brings to you next, to look through the lens of grace. Look, to, look for what Jesus is doing in your life. Look for how all the things you have and all the things you've accomplished have nothing to do with how hard you've worked but only because of the gift of the love of God through his son. And I'm telling you, man, life will change. 
And you won't be in the ditch of lawlessness. You won't be in the ditch of legalism, but you'll be on that straight and narrow path that brings you right to the kingdom of God. Look for the grace in your life. God bless you.